The crews are heading into danger and almost certain whiteout. They are trying to contain fires which are moving with a frightening ferocity. The crews are maneuvering near blind, dropping what seems like trickles of water in comparison to the giant bushfires. Tonight, the desperate battle to contain California's historic fires is now a race against time. Crews working around the clock to get a handle on some of the largest fires in state history with a new looming threat in the forecast today. Fresh red flag warnings and another predicted bout of dry lightning storms. The same conditions were in place exactly one week ago. Thousands of lightning strikes and heavy winds spread... In recent years, the frequency and scale of forest fires has been accelerating. The 2020 Australian bushfires burnt a quarter of a million square kilometres, destroyed 3,000 buildings and killed 34 people, as well as an estimated 3 billion terrestrial vertebrates. The impact of climate change is making the wildfire season longer and more damaging. In 1984 in the US, just over 1 million acres were burned by forest fires. In 2020, that number surpassed 10 million acres. The raging wildfires in western Canada have wiped out more than 2 million acres of land in Alberta, an area about half the size of Lake Ontario. It's a grim toll. Right now, Canada is experiencing one of its worst wildfire seasons ever. There are currently 883 active fires, and 580 of them are out of control. Wildfires can be caused naturally, most commonly by lightning, but the US Forest Service estimates that 85% of fires are started by humans. And one of the causes that is on the rise is vegetation management around power lines. Power lines have caused six of California's 20 most destructive wildfires since 2015. Winds can blow tree branches into making contact with power lines, or live wires can fall onto dry grass, which starts fires. Beyond the risk of wildfire, the increasingly frequent and strong storms can cause trees to fall and lead to blackouts. In the end, the calling card of Storm Eunice was its devastating winds. And with power networks spanning thousands of miles, ensuring that transition lines are well maintained and a safe distance from vegetation is no easy task. Our reliance on energy networks is only going to increase. The natural conditions that exacerbate wildfires or bring more frequent extreme weather will also mean we need to turn to technology to improve our power network management. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to find out how power companies are using LiDAR and other sensors to better understand and maintain their assets that span across vast areas. Traditionally, the method for maintaining power lines and conducting vegetation management is a time-consuming and laborious process. What you saw was foot patrols going out onto the network with clipboards or other equipment, taking down information on defects, vegetation clearances, anything in the span that needed either treated or a work order developed from that. It took a long time uh, for 
them to go around their entire networks. So the likes of WPD now, NGED, National Grid Electricity Distribution, it could take anything up to eight to 10 years to get around their complete network. I mean, it was 92,000 line kilometers of overhead network. Chris Borland is the global lead for the power service line at Fugro, which has been working with WPD, Western Power Distribution, which is now part of National Grid, to make their vegetation management more efficient. We cover the southwest of England, South Wales, the East and West Midlands. So that's about 55,500 square kilometres. Robin Toucher is the account manager for the helicopter unit at National Grid Electricity Distribution, or NGED, which is what Western Power Distribution is now called. The helicopter fleet that Robin is in charge of has been around for 60 years and has always given NGED an advantage in surveying the area their power network covers. So the helicopter unit was formed in 1963. We celebrated its 60th anniversary at the end of March. The kind of underlying principles of of what we do today and what they were doing in 1963 haven't really changed a great deal. It is the proactive and reactive inspection of the overhead network. Obviously the aircraft have changed quite considerably since 1963 and the technology has changed a great deal since 1963, but the principles of what we do flying next to the overhead network are almost identical. Rather than relying on reports of damage or sending out foot patrols to inspect the vast network, helicopters have been constantly flying and inspecting the network and also responding to any incident along the route very quickly. We're capturing approximately 60 to 100 kilometres of network every day per aircraft. And NGET itself has 1.4 million poles, I believe, and around 92,000 kilometres of overhead network. And that's split into the various voltages. And we would, when we've got aircraft fully serviceable, we would normally have one aircraft in each of the licensed areas. So one in the Southwest, one in Wales, one in the East and one in the West Midlands. That would give us a capability of being able to react if we were tasked. We can be anywhere on the network within about 30 minutes, which is great from responsive capability. But even with a fleet of helicopters able to cut down on the time spent walking around the network, there was still a lot of manual work being done to understand the condition of power lines and the distance of vegetation. So we wanted to go to reduce their cyclical inspection programs. And the way to do that was actually to move the sensors and the tools into aircraft or helicopters and start flying the network because you could could get around the network a lot faster and you could cut down that cyclical process. And you could also then bring that data back into the the desktop environment, process it, analyze it, and give that information that the inspectors were seeing on the ground in a digital format on a screen where they could actually do the work programs from the comfort of the, the office. The helicopters were decked out with cameras and sensors, so rather than simply a visual inspection of the line, detailed data on many different aspects started being collected. We did a fairly significant BAU investment on the aircraft to install them with a LiDAR system, a multiple sensing camera, um, which is a a tracker-based system, the SWE 400, that has a thermal camera, a corona camera, 
high definition video camera, a stills camera, and various other little bits of tech that help us kind of get away around the network. But that all in combination, what we've what we've done is moved away from the fact of only being able to do one type of patrol on one flight. We are now doing the non-visual spectrum, so the, the thermal camera and the corona camera, as well as LiDAR capture and the visual inspection from the observer sat in the front left, all at the same time on any voltage. So it's a really unique capability. Before, it would just be a pilot and an inspector in the helicopters looking over the line. Now a third crew member has been added. We obviously have, we have a pilot on board, we have an observer on board, and the observer is the inspector effectively. In our case, they're qualified overhead inspectors, and they are looking to identify from a list of about 50 defects on each asset that we pass. And the recent introduction was a, a mission systems operator who sits in the rear of the aircraft that's looking after all the technology that we carry as well. So theirs is the data. The guys sat in the back are the, the, the providers of the data, the, the, the LiDAR data, the thermal data, the corona data, and then the defect data as well. It's quite an ask. There's a lot going on. There's multiple screens in the back of the aircraft. There's computers. There's a huge rack of computers in, in the rear, right in the rear cabin of the aircraft. So one we can imagine when it's 20, 25 plus degrees, it's not a particularly pleasant environment sat in the back of the aircraft. But they seem to be, they're all brilliant and they're all doing really well. It's also a difficult job for the pilot, as to get the best data on the network, it's important to fly as close to the line as possible. If we think about the, 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 the landing gear, the skids of the aircraft, they would normally be in line with, there or thereabouts, with the level of the conductor. So. We're flying alongside it. We don't fly above it. We fly where we can. Not always possible. This means the helicopters are only around 40 feet or 13 metres off the ground. Not just so the LiDAR data can be collected, but also so the visual inspection can take place simultaneously. But the best tool at the moment, with the knowledge that they have and the capability to, to look at the network, is the guy sat in the front left-hand seat. I think the other really important point to note on this as well is that everything that we do is, ca is captured and delivered in real time. So uh, the line of data on, and, and the imagery is obviously dealt with at the back end of the day, but the, 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 the physical inspection of the network by the observer is, is provided back to network services almost in real time to a degree that if we come across something that we would consider to be a, uh, a safety condition that may affect third parties or the public, then we'd land um, and we'd secure the site until we've got representation from network services. But for smaller things that may not be possible to see with the naked eye, like minor wear in the wire, or the exact distance of a tree from the network, that's where all the data being collected comes into use. The data is put through Fugro's Roams technology, a powerful solution where all the data can be visualized and understood by an operator. So with Roams, we are taking that point cloud and beginning a series of steps that are highly automated, but with additional quality control and assurance from humans to extract more information from the point cloud. So what we're doing is taking those points and using them to create things like three-dimensional models or representations of key features. Right now, what that means is we convert that point cloud into poles and wires. 
and each of those then gets its own asset ID and then it is an object that is represented in a three-dimensional space in an online viewer and in that viewer then the user can see that point cloud as context so they see everything that's around it but they're also seeing that 3d network as a yeah a set of poles and wires that they can look at they can spin around they can click on and um and yeah more importantly they can see the context of everything around it Shelby Coda is Fugro's geospatial solution owner and works with power network owners in Australia, where the Rome's technology was first developed by Ergon Energy. So at this time, this was um, Ergon Energy and their distribution operator. They were sending workers out into the field and trucks to do both inspections and then um, subsequently to go out and replace an asset or fix an asset or do network clearance from vegetation. So the result was uh, multiple trips on site, which is obviously um, a burden in terms of time, um, but also as a safety issue because you're every time you're putting boots on the ground or you, you have a truck roll, then there's obviously going to be some increased risk. But the other part of it is simply just the sheer size of Queensland. It's, it's massive. And the distribution network spans out um, across the entirety of the state. So sending a worker to go inspect a distribution line out at the other end of Queensland from base would take several hours out and back. So to be able to have that network visibility all at once meant they had to think a completely different way. So Rome's was created first as a 3D model of the entire network made up of LiDAR data. This is kind of where technology was several years ago, where it was common that somebody would just go collect LiDAR and then just say, all right, here, here's your LiDAR, um, good luck. Go figure out what to do with it. And you're just staring at this just blank cloud of points. It doesn't have any context. So we model every span, we model every wire, we model every pole and from that then we can from a pole basis we can get very accurate heights of poles uh, conductor lengths uh, the attachment point heights we can also look at the lean of the poles so poles can be bumped by farm equipment or just potentially the subsidence in, in the soil we can monitor that change over time as well so each time there's a new scan we can actually compare to the last measurement as well. Having that information on a more readily occurring basis where you could actually sort of see the clearances across the network and if anything was changing over time uh, is another thing that we were recording. The other final bit was probably the asset matching functionality. So that's where we take our client's 2D GIS schematic and our we develop schematic out of the, the, the 3D visualization or the 3D network model and we match the poles and the, the spans to both. Traditionally, GIS schematics have been a conglomeration of maybe digitized paper maps or when two companies have maybe merged, they've brought two different software solutions. And what really happens is you'll find that you'll get inherent errors 
in that sort of GIS. So with the very highly accurate LIDAR model, we can then match all the poles and wires and find those positional inaccuracies and also any missing poles as well. But Rome's capabilities have continued to develop beyond just a 3D representation of the network to provide even more useful information. For us, the point cloud's a means to an end. Once you've got that three-dimensional model that now has an ID, um, we can start to do much more interesting things with it than what you can do with a point cloud. So once the model is there and once we've modeled everything else that's around the network, so for instance, trees, signs, buildings, the ground, etc., then we can start performing more sophisticated processes on top of it. So that means we can start to essentially conduct spatial queries or spatial interrogation. So what that means is we have all these features, we've identified what they are, and we've put them into a 3D, what is essentially a referenced environment where everything has a, a frame of reference to a geographic coordinate system um, or to a map projection. So the distance between all of these things has a value that we can calculate. An operator can then decide to set parameters. For a wire of a given voltage, they can decide to see everything within a certain distance. So if they tell us, okay, I really care about everything that is close to my, you know, I don't know, 11 kV conductors, please highlight everything that is within three meters of that or five meters of that or 10 meters of, of, of that voltage and we can enforce those parameters against this 3D model. That's what generates the analytics. So all of that is then provided in another environment that talks to the, the 3D environment, and that's how the users are actually interacting with and, and consuming the data that we're providing. So today, rather than multiple trips out to remote sites to check the vegetation near power lines before sending a contractor out to trim it back, or discovering a drooping line while out on patrol, measuring its distance to the ground and sending out a work order for repair, operators can see the exact distance of every branch from every line, the distance of the line to the ground, even how the pole's lean has changed, from the comfort of their desk, and send out teams to conduct the maintenance where necessary. Rome's has been expanded even further to include an advanced vegetation solution, which allows for predicting when vegetation management will become required in advance. And that's where we're now actually delivering uh, information on the, the actual species of the tree and also doing health indices of that tree as well. So that's kind of giving them a little bit more of a 4D intelligence around the network as well. Um, particularly if you know a tree is a, a danger tree or a tree that grows quite rapidly, they can then maybe put a, a different work program in place just to treat that tree. If it's trending, if it's health trend that over time is that it's actually you know getting towards the end of its life, you know again another program could be put in to put you know to cut it down as well. The Rome's interface is designed to allow inspectors to see the information as they want to see it. So depending on what you're wanting to look at, so let's look at the asset model. Uh, when you open that, then you, you get a, a lot of columns and information there. 
it's related back to individual poles uh, or, or conductors and it's uniquely linked to our client's data, uh, asset uh, database as well. So, you know, each pole you click on is linked and has that unique number uh, from there. It gives you the information then on the heights, uh, the voltage level and things like that, and then it will break it down into circuits or whatever. So as a inspector, you'd normally be charged to say, go and inspect circuits X, Y, and Z. So you can easily then in the analytics say, right, I want to see X, Y, and Z. Filter down to those, all that information is then displayed in, on those circuits. From there, you can analyze all sorts of data points from polling to ground and vegetation clearance. If you then want to visualize it and see what you're actually seeing in the anal analytics, because again, as humans, we, we, we probably prefer to see the, and, and understand and interact with the, our, our um, world around us. We can click a button at the bottom of the analytics, it loads up uh, Rome's world and that's the 3D visualization tool. And then from there, you can click on the, the record that you want to see and uh, in the analytics and it'll immediately fly you into the, uh, the, 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 the 3D visualization. And in the 3D visualization, uh, you'll, you'll start with, you'll see the, the, the 3D network model, uh, you see the poles modeled kind of to the, in, in the real world, how they look and the conductors there as well. And then you have other information then that you can start to turn on. Uh, so you can turn on the imagery base, which looks at the, the images that's taken at the same time as a LiDAR. And then we can turn on the LiDAR itself, and then that builds out the 3D environment of how, one, the model was uh, uh, created, but also then, uh, you know, you can then see how maybe that ground clearance infringement has come about. It also then gives the operator that ability that if they wanted to go out and do another inspection or they have to send a work crew out to fix it, you'll be able to maybe look at access points, what sort of equipment, what sort of car or vehicle that you might need to drive out to that because if it's you know across three or four fields you'll probably have to take four-wheel drive vehicles and other things like that so that whole process of where it would have normally maybe seen that they had found a they find a defect the the inspector might have then driven back out again to take a look and then actually assess how they get to the to the defect it's kind of all taken back into the, the, the digital environment and they can just sort of assess everything there. This is only the beginning for the potential of properly utilising data from major assets. It's only in the past few years that the processing capabilities have become quick enough for the fast turnaround required for these applications. These LIDAR surveys required such high density, they required helicopters to go collect them. It took eons to process this data because it was so dense and it was so heavy and it was so much data that it was really just impossible or at least very prohibitive to use it for vegetation management because if it would take I mean, several months to really, that's optimistic, even a couple of years for a lot of utilities to get this data back from when it was captured. 
we've been able to really improve our turnaround times and our throughput rates to the point where, depending on the size of um, data inputs, I mean, we, we in complexity, we can turn around data in, I mean, at a minimum, a couple of weeks. So that, that really does start to become a game changer for vegetation managers who really, really do need that rapid turnaround for them to get the most value out of this kind of data. It's not just the processing of data that takes time. On the scale of an entire power network, collecting the data, even with the use of helicopters, takes time. Using unmanned drones to do some of this data collection may soon be a possibility, although Robin is sceptical of their ability to take over the complex, low-flying role of his helicopter team. But they could do some data collection at higher altitudes. So that, I think, is fantastic territory to start thinking about the use of a remotely piloted system or a drone. I wouldn't necessarily say autonomous. Um, I think I've mentioned that the, 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 the environment around the network is incredibly dynamic, especially at low level, um, with horses and cattle and people. Therefore, the, someone overseeing what that aircraft is doing, and that's why I've kind of referred to the remotely piloted, because there may be times that someone does need to intervene. I think we're a long way off an AI system being able to almost look at what that horse is doing, knowing the behavior and the, the, the kind of the body language of, of a horse and knowing what to do, whether to climb, whether to go right, whether to go left, whether to completely avoid. That's, you know, that, that's why we've got people sat in the aircraft at the moment that, that can make those decisions. Chris believes as the technology continues to improve and the costs continue to come down, the way data is collected for a power network could change. Certainly with the way the technology is, is improving with the, the sensors and things like that, the, the aircraft um, and sensors are sort of, they, they do, that we are flying faster and higher each time. So the potential is that cost still uh, drops down as well. Probably from a, a future perspective, uh, where I would see it maybe going is that at the moment with the, the equipment that we operate on the manned aircraft, similar to the helicopters, it's quite heavy, um, so it is, uh, and you kind of need it to get that uh, sort of point density and the information to, to develop the models that that, that kind of drive the the analytics. But there are large drones fleets. So when I sort of say large scale drones, these are the ones that you know can can maybe stay up in the air, maybe for anything for up to twelve, to ten to twelve hours at a time, uh, and that would allow then us to develop sort of remote operation centers where you would have um, crews just sort of piloting from again the comfort of a, an office or a, a desk environment where they'll actually be uh, the, the aircraft will be up or the drones will be up surveying maybe wide areas or they might be actually down closer to the network doing asset condition inspection but that improves the whole efficiency of the capture as well uh, and just then uh, improves overall uh, the, the sort of OPEX costs that, that, that the uh, network operators would, would have uh, from there as well. And Shelby is confident that much further into the future, the data collection might not even require helicopters or drones at all. Right now, we're still doing this through remote sensing, meaning we've got a sensor on a platform that is removed from the assets themselves. If the platform or sensor was actually on the assets and perhaps modeling the one next to it and then able to 
not only collect that data, but somehow process and make sense of it on, this would be considered edge computing, and then just automatically updating an insights platform for end clients that has already, yeah, the data has already been collected, processed, converted into analytics, and then really converted into something that actually makes sense, like actual insights, actual intelligence for the, the clients. That, that, that would be the dream. That would be the end game. Um, and I absolutely see us getting there <laughs> at some point. It's, it's a matter of when, not if. And I'm kind of excited to, to see how, how we go, how we get there. Data collection and roams is already helping to make managing a giant asset like a power network safer, cheaper and more efficient. But the data already being collected could be applied much more widely. There are a few obvious tangential industries. So one would be the um, telecoms, so telecommunications. And if for any other reason then, because we are capturing their network information anyway, when we're capturing the poles and wires of the utilities. So rail obviously also maintains a large network of overhead wiring conductors. And this is something that we, we do a pretty, pretty good job of, of modeling already and can easily capture in our data collection. We're easily able to catch things like um, transportation network rights of way, um, railways, for instance, urban centers, et cetera. So it's a pretty useful pot of data that we end up with at the end of all of this, even just collecting data for the, the power utility. So it's definitely something that we try to communicate with those communities or with our other clients or stakeholders in the region. Utilizing the data produced by major assets will continue to develop and become more and more prevalent across industries. For power networks, the ability to spot the danger vegetation presents to your power lines in near real time can save a huge amount of time and money. And while forest fires aren't the main concern for Robin in the wet and rainy southwest of England, they are a big concern for the clients Shelby works with in Australia. So is bushfire or wildfire management one of the core drivers for our solution? Absolutely. Does it mean that it is the be all end all to preventing that? I mean, absolutely not. Obviously you, you've got to have a, a pretty, you know, well-balanced management portfolio to try to prevent those types of things. And even then it's still not always good enough um, just because it's, it's a difficult and, and complex thing to prevent yeah, the, the starting of, of, of wildfires or bushfires from assets that are well entrenched in the natural environment, right? If humans are going to exist so closely to the wildland interface, then this kind of thing is inevitable. But absolutely, um, utilities can use technology like this and other technologies as well to, to do as much due diligence as possible to prevent these kinds of things happening. But climate change will change things in the UK. And that is something Robin and his team are considering. Is climate change giving us those problems now 
No, I don't. I, not not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say yet. Is it a potential that it will become an issue? Then yes. But the vegetation management is obviously based on the fact that you don't want any vegetation touching the network, both from a safety and a reliability perspective. But as I said, using things like dynamic network modeling, we can see where potentially wind might impact at a greater distance. So we can start thinking about actually we need to take that back, we need to take that back a bit further. Storm prediction, nice interesting one is, you know, where are where is the vegetation? Where is the storm going to hit? Where are our risk areas? So developing resiliency is the way to make sure that we, we try and avoid any kind of external influences of temperature and weather change. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Johnny Dowling, hosted by me, Alex Conacher, co-hosted by Rhea Owen, edited by Will North, series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our ever-circling eye in the sky is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Instagram.